Part 19 of Works of Solace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Works of Gaius Celestius Crispus. Translated by Alfred W. Pollard. Ugurthine War, Part 10. After a speech of this kind, Marius, when he saw the enthusiasm of the commons aroused, hastily loaded ships with provisions, pay, arms, and other requisites, and ordered his lieutenant, Aulus Manlius, to set out in charge of them. Meanwhile he himself levied soldiers, not, according to ancient custom, from the classes, but simply as they volunteered, and, for the most part, men of no fortune. Some asserted that this course was taken owing to the scarcity of respectable recruits. Others trace it to the consul's desire for popularity, inasmuch as it was by men of this description that his renown and dignity had been given him, while the seeker for power ever finds his readiest instrument in the needy wretch, who, in his destitution, has no home to hold dear, and thinks everything honorable that brings him gain. Marius, therefore, set out for Africa with a force slightly in excess of that decreed him, and after a few days landed at Utica. The army was delivered to him by Publius Rutilius, the lieutenant of Metellus, for the general himself had avoided the sight of Marius, lest he should see the things of which his resolution had been unable to support the mere hearing. With his legions and auxiliary cohorts at their full strength, the consul marched upon a fertile district, stocked with booty. He gave the whole of the plunder there taken to his soldiers, and then attacked some fortresses and towns which were neither well situated, nor manned for defense. He also fought many petty engagements at various points. Meanwhile, his raw soldiers joined in battle without alarm, and saw that the runaways were either captured or killed, that the bravest man was the safest, and that the power of protecting his freedom, country, parents, and every other blessing, and of winning glory and wealth, all lay in a man's arms. In this way, recruits and veterans were soon welded together, and all became equally courageous. On learning of the arrival of Marius, the kings separated, and made their way to inaccessible districts. Jugurtha had determined on this course in the hope that it might be possible to attack the enemy in detail, and that the Romans, like most other soldiers, when relieved of alarm, would grow careless and disorderly. Meanwhile, Metellus had started for Rome and was there, contrary to his expectation, received with the utmost rejoicing. Now that his unpopularity had faded away, he was equally beloved by the commons and the senate. Marius now gave his mind with energy and foresight to the position alike of his own and the enemy's army, ascertained that their respective advantages and drawbacks, set spies to watch the movements of the kings, forestalled their plans and treacheries, and left nothing unlocked on his own side, or unmenaced on theirs. He had thus often attacked and routed on their march both the Galutians and Jugurtha, as they tried to plunder our allies and, not far from Cerda, had stripped the king himself of his arms. Finding, however, that these exploits served rather to gain glory than to finish the war, he determined to invest, one after another, the cities which from their garrison or situation were most adapted for helping the enemy and injuring himself. Jugurtha would thus be deprived of his strongholds should he not interfere, 
or, if he did, would have to fight a battle. As for Bocchus, that king had sent numerous embassies to him, expressing his desire for the friendship of the Roman people, and assuring him that he need fear no attack from his quarter. Whether in this he was feigning in order to make an assault the more dangerous because unexpected, or whether it was an outcome of the fickle character which made him love to be now at peace, and now at war, has not been ascertained. The consul carried out his plans, and by marching on the fortified towns and strongholds, wrested them from the enemy, in some cases by force, in others by threats or promise of reward. At first he confined himself to insignificant ventures, thinking that Jugurtha would give battle in defense of his subjects. When he learned that the king was far away and engaged on other business, it seemed time to attempt greater and more difficult undertakings. In the midst of vast deserts there lay a strong and important town, named Capsa, founded, so tradition said, by the Libyan Hercules. Jugurtha had exempted its citizens from tribute, his yoke was light, and they were, therefore, the most loyal of his subjects. Against their enemies they were protected by walls, arms, and men, and above all, by their inaccessible position. With the exception of the immediate neighborhood, the whole country was desolate, untilled, without streams, and made unsafe by serpents, which, like all savage creatures, become more dangerous by lack of food, while their nature, of itself a deadly one, is more quickened by thirst than by anything else. A great desire of mastering this place had seized Marius. It would be useful for the war, and at the same time the exploit appeared difficult, and Metellus, with great glory to himself, had taken the town of Thala, whose position and fortifications were very like those of Capsa, except that at Thala there were some springs not far from the walls, while the people of Capsa had only a single fount of running water, and that within the town. The rest of their supply came from rain. This inconvenience, both at Capsa and in all parts of Africa where men lived amid deserts far from the sea, was the more easily borne owing to the Numidian habit of feeding chiefly on milk and game, while they avoid salt and other stimulants of the palate. Food is to them the antidote of hunger and thirst, not an object of passionate extravagance. To resume, the consul made every inquiry, and then, I suppose, placed his trust in heaven, for no forethought could enable him to make sufficient provision against such obstacles. Besides those I have mentioned, he was assailed by a scarcity of corn, for the Numidians applied themselves more to raising fodder for their cattle than crops, and by command of the king had conveyed every blade to their strongholds. It was now also the height of summer, and the country at this season was parched and barren. In spite of these difficulties, Marius made such arrangements as his means allowed with great forethought. He assigned to the auxiliary cavalry the task of conveying all the cattle that had been captured on the previous days, ordered his lieutenant, Aulus Manlius, with some light cohorts, to proceed to the town of Laris, where he had stored pay and provisions, and announced that in a few days he would come to the same place in person in the course of his pillaging. With his real object thus concealed, he advanced towards the river Teneus. On his march he had each day equally proportioned out the flocks among his army by sentries and squadrons, and saw that leather bottles were made out of the hides. In this way he lessened the effects of the scarcity of corn, and at the same time, in perfect secrecy, made preparations, 
soon to be of use while finally by the sixth day when they reached the river a great quantity of skins had been got ready marius now pitched his camp with only a slight fortification and ordered the soldiers to take their food and be prepared to march exactly at sunset all their baggage was to be thrown away and they were to load themselves and their beasts with nothing but water when it seemed time he marched out of the camp advanced throughout the night and then came to a halt he followed the same plan the next night and on the third arrived long before dawn at some downs distant not more than two miles from capsa there he concealed himself and all his forces as closely as he could day dawned and the numidians who dreaded no attack issued in numbers from the town when suddenly marius ordered all his cavalry and the swiftest of his foot soldiers to advance at full speed upon capsa and seize the gates he himself hurried eagerly after them and forbade the soldiers to go after booty the townspeople became aware of his attack and the peril of their position their great alarm the suddenness of the calamity and the fact that a part of their citizens were outside the walls and in the enemy's power all compelled them to surrender the town was nevertheless burnt the adult numidians slaughtered all the others sold and the spoil divided among the soldiers this outrage on the laws of war was not caused by any avarice or wickedness on the part of the consul it was due to the fact that the place while useful to jugurtha was difficult for us to reach and its inhabitants a fickle and treacherous race restrained neither by kindness nor fear even before this marius had been regarded as a great and illustrious general now that he had accomplished such an exploit without loss to his soldiers his fame rose still higher every error in his judgment was interpreted as a merit the soldiers who were mildly governed and at the same time enriched praised him to the skies the numidians feared him as something more than man and in fine all allies and enemies alike believed that he was either inspired or that by the will of heaven all things were foretold him after the success of this undertaking the consul marched upon other towns captured by storm a few where the numidians resisted but found a greater number abandoned owing to the terror inspired by the fate of capsa these he destroyed with fire and filled the whole land with sorrow and bloodshed after gaining possession of many places and mostly without loss to his army he applied himself to another exploit not indeed so perilous as that of capsa but no less difficult to achieve not far from the river muluka which separated the kingdom of jugurtha and bocchus there rose amid the surrounding plain a rocky mountain broad enough at the summit for a fort of moderate size and reaching to an immense height a single narrow approach was left all the rest was as precipitous naturally as if labor and design had been employed to form it the fact that the king's treasures were stored in this place now led marius to concentrate all his energies on its capture chance however was more instrumental than skill in bringing about a happy result the fort was well supplied with men and arms and had an abundance of provisions and a spring of water the ground too was unsuited for the employment of ramparts turrets and other means of attack and the path used by the garrison was extremely narrow with a sheer descent on either side penthouses were brought up at great risk but with no result as soon as they had made a slight advance they were destroyed by fire or showers of stones the ruggedness of the ground prevented soldiers from making a stand in front of their works 
and they could not even labor amid the penthouses without danger. The bravest men were wounded or killed, and their loss increased the terror of the rest. After many days had been spent in fruitless toil, Marius anxiously debated whether he should abandon the attempt, since all his efforts were in vain, or wait for the fortune whose favors he had often experienced. He had pondered his situation for many restless days and nights, when a certain Ligurian, a private in one of the auxiliary cohorts, happening to leave the camp to fetch water, at a point not far from the side of the fort, opposite to that on which the combatants were engaged, noticed some snails crawling amid the rocks, and, as he went after the first one, then another, then a large number, in his eager gathering gradually climbed nearly to the summit. He at last remarked the loneliness of his situation, and man's inborn love of the difficult made him change his purpose. It happened that, just where he was, a large home oak had sprung up amid the rocks, growing for a little way horizontally and then taking a turn, and springing aloft in the natural direction of all plants. Clinging sometimes to the branches of this tree, at others to the jutting rocks, the Ligurian made his way to the level summit of the mountain, for the attention of all the Numidians was occupied with the combatants. After satisfying himself on all points which he thought might presently be of use, he now returned by the same way, not, however, carelessly, as he had ascended, but testing and examining every inch. He then hastily sought an interview with Marius, informed him of his adventure, and advised him to assail the fort on the side by which he had made the ascent, offering himself to act as guide on the perilous journey. Marius sent some of those about him with the Ligurian to test his assurances, and these, according to several characters, variously reported the undertaking as difficult or easy. The spirit, however, of the consul was somewhat raised. From the trumpeters and the horn-blowers at his disposal he chose five of the swiftest, and sent with them four centurions as a guard. He ordered the whole force to obey the Ligurian, and fixed the following day for the attempt. When he saw that the appointed time had arrived, and all the arrangements were complete, Marius advanced against the place. Meanwhile, the scaling party, instructed by their leader, had changed their armor and accoutrements, and had bared their heads and feet, so as more easily to see and keep their footing amid the rocks. On their backs they carried their swords and shields, but these last were of Numidian make and formed of leather, both as being lighter and making less noise when struck. The Ligurian led the way, and fastened nooses around the rocks and the projecting roots of ancient trees, so as by these supports to assist the soldiers in their ascent. Some were frightened by the strange nature of the track, and these, from time to time, he helped along with his hands. Whenever the ascent was somewhat steeper, he sent them on in front, one by one, without their arms, and then followed with these himself. Where the footing seemed doubtful, he was the first to test it, and by repeatedly climbing up and down in the same way, and then suddenly standing aside, inspired the rest with boldness. After a long and exhausting climb, they at length arrived at the fort, and found it undefended on this side. Its garrison, as on other days, had all gone to face the enemy. On hearing from the messengers of the success of the Ligurian, Marius, although he had kept the Numidians fully engaged in battle the whole of the day, now redoubled his exhortations to his soldiers, and himself issuing beyond the penthouses, made his men advance under cover of their locked shields, and at the same time terrified the enemy from a distance by means of his catapults, bowmen, and slingers. 
the Numidians on previous occasions had often overthrown or burnt the Roman penthouses, and were no longer in the habit of sheltering themselves behind their ramparts. Alike by day and night they moved to and fro before their wall, insulted the Romans, scoffed at Marius as a madman, threatened our soldiers with being made slaves to Jugurtha, and displayed all the insolence of success. Meanwhile, when all, both Romans and Numidians, were occupied in the battle, and our men were fighting vigorously for fame and dominion, the others for their own safety, the trumpets suddenly sounded in the rear. The women and boys, who had issued forth to see the fight, were the first to fly, and they were followed by those of the defenders nearest the wall, and finally by the whole body of armed and unarmed men. On this the Romans redoubled their efforts, scattered the enemy, whom for the most part they were content only to wound, made their way over the bodies of the slain, strove in their eagerness for glory, each to be the first to reach the wall, and in not a single instance allowed plunder to delay them. Marius's rashness was redeemed by his fortune, and his fault redounded to his fame. End of Ugurthine War, Part 10